0: Uh, Welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, Talking Story with Guides and Interpreters. I am Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. I just want to mention before we start that April 8th to 17th, I'll be teaching a virtual certified interpretive guide course. You can learn more about it at interpnet.com under the training calendar for National Association for Interpretation. I am delighted today to have an old friend, a colleague, a colleague. Uh, a gentleman that I've known many years through National Association for Interpretation and his many different jobs because he's worked for a lot of different organizations. And we're going to learn about that during the conversation. So I'm going to let that uh, be the introduction. But Bradley Block, it's wonderful to see you again.
1: Great to see you, Tim. Thank you so much. It'll be fun to visit with you.
0: Well, as long as we've known each other, I confess... Uh, If you asked me what I know about your early years, I would say I thought you were from Iowa. Is that true?
1: Yeah, yeah. I grew up in a little town in northwest, north central Iowa called Humboldt, Iowa.
0: And you went to college where?
1: I went to University of Northern Iowa, which is over in Cedar Falls. Cedar Falls, Waterloo, kind of on the eastern side of the state.
0: I've been in Cedar Falls before did you imagine what you would be doing when you were in high school or what were your career thoughts back then?
1: You know, I, I've kind of looked back on that probably over the years and tried to remember what it was that I wanted to do. And, and, you know, to be honest with you, I think for, for most of my life, I've always wanted to work in something with public lands. Um, I was very fortunate when I worked in high school um, for a seasonal position during the summer months, I worked for the Humboldt County Conservation Board. So I I was the kid, if you will, that went out and mowed the county parks and emptied out the trash cans and cleaned the bathrooms and maybe swept out the shelter houses and tried to get everything looking as best they could be for the weekend visitors and weekend campers. But um, while working for Humboldt County, Back in the day, there was a there was a wonderful group of people, and I don't know if they're still around or not, but it was called the Arrowhead uh, Education Association, and they were these groups, if you will, of, I believe, public educators, maybe funded by the state, or at least offices funded by the state, and they would do environmental education programs across the state. And Humboldt County actually had a, a program they did with, like, fourth or fifth graders, and the the director, for whatever reason, I don't remember, he couldn't participate in the program. So he asked me, you know, an 18 year old young man, if I could go out and do this presentation on his, on his behalf. So I, I went out and, and uh, I did a presentation on animal tracks and, and uh, tracking wildlife and, and just really kind of felt like I was king of the world with this elementary group of students. It was a lot of fun. And, and so from there, it just kind of blossomed to that's kind of what I wanted to do. But I would be remiss to say there were probably times where I wanted to work for the border patrol, you know, down on New Mexico or Texas. I had a stint where I wanted to be in the military, but I'm glad I chose the path that I did. It's still still a lot of fun. And I have, I have just wonderful memories over the last 30 years.
0: Well, that's great. You've had some great jobs.
1: I was very, very lucky. Um, I graduated from UNI in May of um, of 1993, and I didn't know exactly where I was going to go or what I was going to do. And so I ended up coming back out to Custer State Park for one season, but then I went back to Iowa and I was very fortunate that a job opened up next door in what was called Pocahontas County Conservation Board. And that was a job I accepted in um, 1994. And I think it was in 94, 95, somewhere in there, um, my supervisor allowed me to ride with Vern Fish, a very good friend of mine from Iowa. He was in the Cedar Falls area. He he said, if you want to go with Vern, they have the NAI region five workshop up in tree Haven or, or, or Tomahawk, uh, some location in Wisconsin, way up North. And so I had the, I had the privilege of going with Vern to that workshop. And then no kidding. When I checked in and registered, they assigned me to a dorm room. Cause it was a residential learning center. And, uh, I'll never forget it, and and I I know Jim knows the story, but the young lady that checked me in said, "I forgive me, but I've got you rooming with an older guy, an old guy," and I said, "Oh, okay." And turned out it was Dr. Jim Pease. So, oh my, yeah, you know, for someone like me, I just spent probably six hours in a van with Vern Fish, one of the most influential naturalists and nature center directors in the state of Iowa and kind of picked his brain and learned from him and then shared a room with with Jim Pease which you know we had conversations into the evening and where I'm leading with this is both of them really really stressed the the need for me to belong to NAI and shared with me your name and so I think it was in that 94 or 95 that I called you up from Pocahontas County Conservation Board and asked, how do I get involved with this organization? And then you kind of lent me the, the guidance to get involved with back then. It was called uh, Region 5, NAI Region 5, and to network with these other people. And I, I, yeah, this, the story could go on easily for several more hours, but I believe it was between Burnfish and Jim Pease. And even in 1993, a dear friend of mine, Sally Spenson, that you might remember from years ago, she used to work at Custer State Park all three of them really suggested me to to get a hold of you and Lisa and I think Tom Mullen's name was out there I mean how much more could a guy that's 24 or 25 years old ask for in a in a profession I mean I'm I'm sitting with the the oak trees of the interpretive profession so
0: so you're saying we basically started out as a nut
1: yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, yeah. No, I've, I've known you, gosh, Tim. I bet you the first time I talked to you, I'm just guessing it was 95. And so, um, gosh, doing the quick math, we've known each other for a long, long time.
0: Yep. And I would t- recall that uh, Region 5, I started and I carried oh, the wow. work that created it. I don't know whether you know that or not. Um, I did not know that. I. I had gone to Indiana to a regional meeting because Illinois used to be in a region with Indiana and Ohio and Michigan okay. and they said you know Illinois really doesn't have its own region and there's a there should be a midwestern region and I said what does it take to create that this is when it was still AIN before it okay became, before it became uh, NAI uh, the Association of Interpretive Naturalists, they explained to me that you could add a region at the Association of Interpretive Naturalists simply by making a petition with the signature of 10 members. And at that meeting in Indiana, there were only about three from Illinois. So it had to be 10 people from the region you were creating. And so they they said, if you'll take the paperwork, you could go to a meeting in I- Dubuque, Iowa. Um with Jim Rooks. I went over there and took the petition with me and Bobby Gallup and her gang from Hennepin County parks in Minnesota was there. And we had just barely enough people. It was a small meeting and we got the petition and I carried the petition and we activated region five and, um, Bobby wanted to be regional director, so that went down. And she said, "What do you want to do?" I said, "I'd love to have a newsletter. I like doing editing, writing, and so I became the Buffalo Bull newsletter, the very first Buffalo Bull." Oh my
1: gosh! Oh my gosh!
0: <laughs> and I'm afraid I took a phone with it that was rather irreverent, and uh, it developed a reputation for being maybe not staying inside the box very well.
1: Oh, so. <laughs> no. Well, um, and I have to admit, even by the time I was becoming a member of NEI and getting involved in region five, of course, you might remember, we had the infamous curmudgeon of uh, NEI, especially region five, Bob Carter. And he's, oh, yeah. you know, he's still very active and yes, yes. very, uh, open with his his thoughts and that was one of the best columns in the entire newsletter was to read some of his curmudgeon like views so
0: well i used to write out of a made-up name elmo watkins who theoretically (laughs) interpretive park manager and he would write an article on interpretive bulldozing oh Uh, my gosh so it was it was was a silly (laughs) thing but the point of it it was so off the edge that other people would write articles. They they went, well, this is, he's publishing such junk. Surely he'll take my article on sunflowers or whatever. And the answer was yes.
1: <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, oh.
0: I became executive director of NAI in 95. So you were coming on board right as I was moving to that role. And yeah, you've named yes. people I've known for a lot of decades. Um, so cool. And your degree actually was in, I want to say earth sciences and some, was it actually interpretation?
1: Yeah. Um, back when I was attending the university of Northern Iowa in the biology department, they, they actually had a natural history interpretation degree an area of, of, um, uh, Degree, not just an emphasis, not just a minor, but it was an actual degree. And uh, I really, to begin with, I didn't even go to school for that. Um, I think, like a lot of students probably coming out of high school, I went to UNI and I spent the first semester taking business classes because UNI was known for being a business school. So, macroeconomics and some other classes like that. And uh, I was very, very lucky. I had a professor named Dr. Lynn Brandt, and he taught a geomorphology class in the earth science department. And during one of the classes, you know, you get to talk to people and you're networking and collaborating and, and just out of the blue, you know, he's asking students what they want to do. And when I told him that I wanted to be a park ranger, somebody that deals with the public in public lands, he was the one to introduced me to the the emphasis or the biology department, natural history interpretation. So my degree is actually in natural history interpretation, but then I have a, you know, a complementary degree, if you will, in, in geology and emphasis and earth science and mineralogy and so forth. So in a perfect world, my goal was to be a park ranger at a, at a public land site that had rocks and minerals and things that I could talk about.
0: And then if I would sidetrack one other way, I used to play music with Sally Spenson at any meeting I went to. She's a wonderful singer and guitar player. And uh, so uh, and then I knew she was at Custer State Park, which you ended up being at. And uh, yeah, great connection.
1: Sally's still here in the Black Hills. I mean, she lives on the eastern side of the Black Hills. And we hooked up in 2022, now that I work for the Forest Service, and I asked her if she would mind doing some musical evening programs for me at some of the campgrounds. So believe it or not, um, I have no idea the age of Sally Spenson, but, you know, she's been around for quite a while in the Black Hills. I mean, she used to work at Custer State Park, and then she did her own side business with wagon rides at Bluebell, but no kidding. She, she spent 2022 and just 2023 working with the Black Hills National Forest singing naturalist related songs to our campers. So she's still, she's still out doing stuff.
0: Well, that's great. You went to Custer and I visited Custer and I think it was when you were there. And I, after Sally had, had left, I remember being at the uh, Vista Center there, kind of an interesting. Log and stone building. Uh, yeah, yeah. Was that a CCC or WPA kind of project?
1: Yeah, the the Peter Norbeck Visitor Center um, was where I was stationed, and that was the main visitor center of the park at that time. And and yeah, the building dated back to 1934, 1935, constructed by the CCC, and its original intent was to be a museum to house artifacts and and other significant items that related to the park at that time. And the CCC also had some sort of program for a group of uh, participants that was artistic. So they physically drew and and, uh, sketched out what the exhibits were going to look like. And back then, they physically wrote what the text was. It wasn't anything produced, of course, by computers or any type of digital means. So, yeah, that building, when I arrived in 1997, was basically the park museum that had been somewhat transitioned into a heavy trafficked visitor center complex.
0: And my first uh, interpretive job was at uh, Giant City State Park in Southern Illinois. And I had a CCC picnic shelter that they had kind of quickly added walls to the outside of it. And they had thrown stuffed animals around on tables throughout the thing and considered that the visitor center. And the very first thing I did was take out the stuffed animals and, uh, <laughs> design and build exhibits that I thought told the park story better than a fox who's right. falling off. And that uh, <laughs> you know, back then they were using, they were using something poisonous.
1: I want, oh, I want to say even back arsenic was a big thing in the, taxidermy business yeah
0: Yeah. and you could just rub those skins a little bit and your fingers would tingle and uh, yeah i thought this is not something we need to keep here so
1: no no in fact when i worked at the peter norbeck visitor center we remodeled that building in in i believe 98 99 or 99 2000 and we worked with a an incredible firm that's still around is Split Rock Studios. Oh, yeah. um, now they're called Split Rock Studios now. When I worked with them originally, they were called, I believe, Deaton Museum Services. And uh, at that time, they were just starting to kind of branch out into their own group. And uh, oh gosh, it was just a wonderful team to to work with. And they really helped us enhance that visitor center. But that was back in the day when we we still used taxidermy. They really didn't use molded fabricated, you know, wildlife specimens. And so yeah, it was it was a beautiful facility. We had one of the largest um bison mounts, I think, of any public land site mounted in the exhibit right when you walked in the front door and and uh and several other mounts, of course, because we we're a wildlife related park. But but then of course moving over to Jewel Cave and remodeling that visitor center, it went away from the taxidermy and went more toward the the safer and more efficient molds that are painted by artists and and so forth.
0: Well, when I was a park naturalist, my job was to keep the visitor center open as many hours as possible, lead hikes on all the trails every week and do a campfire program on Saturday night. What kind of programming were you doing?
1: Well, at Custer State Park, um, when I first arrived in, in what would have been 97 about the spring of 97 the main focus, of course, was um, predominantly summer visitation. People showing up in mid to late May. Back then, it was pretty much focused on Memorial Day weekend to probably Labor Day weekend. Maybe a little bit of shoulder season traffic, but but for the most part, it was the summer months. So uh, I'm I'm very, actually, very proud to say that the staff I worked with did an incredible an assortment of programs because on a typical day, a naturalist that worked with me at Custer State Park, they probably came in and worked the visitor center from 11 to one so that the volunteers working would have a lunch break to go and and take off their time. Then at one o'clock they would do a a hands-on gold panning presentation down at French Creek, just down the hill from the visitor center. Then they would have a break time to work on their evening programs or or practice their scripts or find, believe it or not, slides for their presentations. And then they would do a junior naturalist program at three o'clock. and then sometimes they would come back and do a wildlife loop road caravan at six o'clock and then an evening program like at nine o'clock. So you know, contrary to what probably happens today, a lot of our staff was doing, things from 10, 11 o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock at night with kind of a split schedule in between. Um, and then of course, as years went on, we condensed that down so that it was a true eight-hour day, which which of course was the right thing to do. But even then, you know, we would have staff doing patio talks in the morning, in the afternoon, uh, junior naturals programs in the morning, in the afternoon. We had roving interpreters that would go out to our different historic sites or wildlife pull-offs on the wildlife loop road. So in, in my opinion, I worked for about 12 years at Custer State Park and it seemed like almost everybody just had a blast during the summer season because there was such a diversity of programs and such a an, uh, you know unique set of experiences every day that it was never the same thing. It just never got old. And so by the time August came, You know, it seemed like it was only 15 minutes and the summer was over with just because you're constantly going.
0: So what did you do during the winter?
1: Well, you know, the first winter, I do remember, it was kind of interesting to me because during the winter season, coming from the state of Iowa, the winter season was probably more hectic than the summer months just because at Pocahontas County Conservation Board, most of our programs were with school groups, elementary schools, middle schools, and high schools. So the academic season was very, very uh, busy and and packed with different scheduling. At Custer's Day Park, once the season was done, we typically kept the visitor center open until maybe the beginning of October, and then we closed it. And then we occasionally would do some school programs. And it was just it was boring yeah i mean it, quite frankly this the winter months could be quite boring and uh, what we started to do is look at ways to enhance the school programming season and go out and do not only field trips during the spring months but to try and engage the kids to come out with their you know school groups in the winter season to go snowshoeing or possibly cross-country skiing or animal tracking what have you but the real kind of claim to fame i guess was um, I believe it was probably 98, I I took an idea that was very popular back in Iowa, the Halloween night hikes that were very, very uh, rampant with a lot of people showing up and attending. I brought that out to Custer State Park, and I'll never forget, you know, the park really did not want to do that. I mean, to have people come out in late October when facilities are closed down and, you know, the waters turned off and the campgrounds are closed was just kind of a new thing to them. And uh long story short, I think the first year we had the hikes on Friday night and Saturday night from five in the eve or five in the afternoon to about nine o'clock at night, every 15 minutes. And the first year, I never forget, we had about 82 people show up. Within about three or four years, we had over a thousand people show up and by the time I left, we had probably 12 to 1,300 people show up. And now, if you go on the South Dakota Game Fish, and Park's website, you'll see they're doing Halloween night hikes at numerous state parks across the state in late October. So between that and, and some other off-season programs, whether it be ice fishing or snowshoeing or um, fat tire biking, was even kind of starting to develop back then, we really kind of made the winter months into something more than just sitting there and planning for the summer season. So, so yeah, I I had a blast. I was able to build something from nothing, more or less.
0: Yeah, I had a similar experience. We uh, uh, started doing a lot of school programming and reached the point where we were really having thousands of kids a year come out for uh, field trips. We actually got so big that on Fridays, we took all the groups that we couldn't take for a small group, like 25 kids. And we would have three to 400. We had built a bigger amphitheater and we would do puppet shows, live snake programs, and a historical reenactment thing. And it was wow, big fun. (laughs) But I enjoyed what you said because when I went to Pueblo and I was running a nonprofit nature center, I needed special events that made money. Where is Fontenelle Forest? Is that in Nebraska?
1: It's in Nebraska. I think it's right outside of Omaha.
0: Yeah. Uh, Jim Malkowski, I believe, was the director of that back then. And I had read in one of their region five things that they did a Halloween spook trail. And so we created one. And like you, uh, it it grew. But ours we were in a city of 100,000. So I was expecting 100 people the first night. Uh, we had 5,000. Oh my gosh! <laughs> we bagged enough candy for five hundred kids. Just thinking that was beyond the realm of possibility. And uh, over the years, it grew to where it was five nights and it was thirteen thousand people.
1: Oh, wow! And uh, <laughs>
0: we were only charging a dollar a head to go on the trail. But uh, this is early nineteen eighties. That was good money for us. For uh, yeah, yeah. So.
1: Yeah, well, I I very distinctly remember, you know, Vern Fish and his crew at the Hartman Reserve Nature Center in Cedar Falls, Waterloo area, they were doing Halloween night hikes and having grand success. And then um, I actually, when I moved to Pocahontas County, I was replacing a a very popular naturalist, Stacy Newbro, her sister is Dawn, I believe, Dawn Chapman. Who just retired within the last year or two, I believe, from from Western Iowa County Conservation Board. But, but yeah, Stacy, you know, she was quite the person. She had a filing cabinet with all kinds of Halloween night hike scripts lined up, and and so for Polkons County, I just kind of took that and brought it out to Custer State Park.
0: You triggered in my memory uh, that Iowa was rather unique. In that you actually had a mandate for a county conservation board in every county, is that correct?
1: Yeah, 99 counties in Iowa, and each one, I believe, is required by law to have a county conservation board. And uh, I think back when I was working for the county conservation board, they were required to have a you know a county conservation board, but maybe not necessarily a a naturalist or an interpreter. And so I believe you know some counties that were quite large, they had multiple staff and then other counties that were maybe smaller rural didn't have anybody. Maybe the director also did the programming. I don't know, but you know, of course I'm an Iowa boy and I've kept in touch with a lot of my friends and colleagues from Iowa. And it's just amazing to see what the county conservation boards are doing back home. I mean, the creativity that they have, the things that they come up with the networking that they they do on an annual basis, it's, it's just awe inspiring. In fact, I, I've shared with numerous, my seasonal staff over the years that have worked for the park service and for state parks, you know, if you really wanna get your foot in the door and, and work for some incredible places, try out those those county conservation boards in Iowa. Just fantastic places to work.
0: I, I think that's great. I just was astounded back in those days that Iowa had such an active program compared to Illinois and other prairie state uh, that we just simply didn't have that going on at the county level at all. Uh, Chicago did. Uh, Cook County and DuPage County nature preserves, but it just wasn't in the rest of the state to any degree. You moved to Jewel Cave National Park, or is that a national monument?
1: National Monument, yeah.
0: Now, what was that like to move from above ground to below ground?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the opportunity came open and the superintendent contacted me and asked if I'd be interested in applying. So I I felt very honored that he reached out to me because he knew I had a degree and a background with geology. And so, yeah, to move from the state park system to the national parks. Um, you know, I'll, I know this sounds kind of comical, but it really was something on my mind is, I think a lot of people in our field, especially interpretation and public lands, we all kind of dream of wearing that flat hat, you know, the National Park Service flat hat. And so I still remember when I applied and when I was going through the interview, just the notion of putting on that flat hat and moving to the the proud and and pride of the National Park Service, a national monument, and and taking part and being a park ranger. And so yeah, for me it was a it was a great move. Um personally, didn't have to move anywhere. Instead of turning right out of my driveway, I just turned left out of my driveway. So I was able to stay in the same location. My wife was able to stay in the Custer school district. And uh and then moving out to Jewel OK from an interpretive approach, I think the the challenge was Trying to interpret something that's not really fully known. Um, unlike a lot of National Park Service sites where the story is very well known or the, the history is well researched and studied or the dates are very specific or the numbers and quantities and research has already been done and figured out. You know, Jewel Cave, when I worked there, you know, at that point in time, we were just under 200 miles of mapped and explored passageways, but by measuring the amount of air volume that was coming out of the cave's natural entrance and kind of using some basic math to figure out what that would mean inside or underground remaining space, you know, we we really felt like that 200 miles of distance, lineal distance only accounted for about 3% of the cave's potential, you know, length, if you will. But you know, even that number one to a visitor is hard to describe because how do you interpret something that you don't know? You, you don't know where it ends, you don't even know you don't even know some of the questions you should be asking to learn more about the resource. But then even just the interpretation of that distance like I explained to the seasonal staff to try and talk about the lineal distance of the cave is like asking how many feet of air is in a basketball. You know, it's a volume in a basketball, but we're looking for lineal distance. So Jewel Cave really posed a lot of wonderful, challenging, interpretive situations for for myself and the team that I worked with to try and engage the public. So it wasn't just a cave tour we really wanted them to leave and and think to themselves we were in one of the most unknown sites on the planet and uh that was that was fun
0: yeah it sounds fun i've actually been in that cave uh and saw some of the interpretive programming going on there and was very impressed with it and i can't begin to tell you what year that was but um jewel cave a dry cave entirely
1: No, um, you know, that's the interesting part is, I think, when I worked at Custer State Park, the the commentary that we heard from the Park Service, because we would get questions about both Jewel Cave National Monument and the Sister Cave, which is Wind Cave National Park, just to the south, both very, very uh, large, complex caves, long, I should say, complex caves, But the whole commentary that we were shared with is that Jewel Cave was more of a a wet cave, wind cave was more of a dry cave. But then when I moved to Jewel Cave and started really working with uh, the, uh, the resource staff and learning more about the resources itself, come to find out that Jewel Cave was actually considered a dry cave too. I mean, very, very small percentage of the cave Showcased water, and usually it was in areas of the cave where there might be a a valley of sorts where the water had a little bit easier access to get to the cave resource. But for several years, it was pretty much indicated that there was no water inside Jewel Cave. And then it was in October of 2015 that our cave explorers, which is typically a group of volunteers, they were on one of their expeditions and came across the the Madison Aquifer, I mean, they discovered basically water, underground water inside the cave, and and it really opened up a a tremendous amount of opportunities now to do even more interpretation because what they found and the way the cave was situated, we knew they weren't going to go past that point because now they would have to go underwater, But, but it really allowed us access to a resource that people were using on the surface. So potentially we could do experiments or tests to see how pure the water was and where, where that water came from. So like the national park service describes and talks about jewel cave is one of those scientific, you know, classrooms in a park, so to speak, that is going to always be looked at and studied and researched.
0: Yeah, I was on the. uh, Biosphere reserve committee for Mammoth Cave when I was at Land Between the Lakes and Kentucky. And it was just the work they were doing because they were getting a lot of uh, water pollution from sinkholes uh, and farms around the cave where farmers would get done with their spraying herbicide, for instance, and just park the tank next to the sinkhole and open the valve. Uh, They were doing a lot of interpretive programming with farmers (laughs) And they were helping bring uh, kind of Tennessee Valley Authority money to the fore that could be given to farmers to do such things as build uh, a wall that would trap the water flowing out of their dairy barn or uh, places they were disposing of waste and that would uh, recycle that water as fertilizer rather than allowing it to run into a sinkhole and go, back in the cave. So Park Service has done some amazing research related to yes. that. Yes. But was it? it's a bit of a different culture to go from state parks to national parks.
1: Oh yes, yes. I probably the best way to say it is, and and this might sound a little bit diplomatic in my wording, but you know, in a state park, we were we were pretty much allowed to do whatever we wanted to do in terms of engaging the public and giving them an experience that would be not only informative and educational interpretive, but also to a degree, entertaining them and providing them with positive memories so that they would go back and and talk to their families and relatives and have them come out to the state park. I mean, it was very focused on just making people have high quality visitor experiences. The National Park Service, I mean, we were still encouraged to come up with ideas and, and ways to engage the public. But, of course, the Park Service is very focused uh, for a number of reasons to stay within the enabling legislation of the park. So, you know, for someone like me, who has maybe a little bit more ra- well-rounded, if you will, interpretation above the ground and astronomy, right, programs, wildlife presentations, and and then below ground activities such as geology and mineralogy and so forth. By working at Jewel Cave, since the enabling legislation was focused on the cave resource, we really didn't go down the path of offering after hours astronomy presentations because that was not the significance of Jewel Cave versus you know Badlands National Park to the east of the Black Hills they have a huge huge um uh, astronomy like program that they do and and yet they've got some of the best night nice skies probably in in the country so park service is very focused on what the resource is versus state parks we were we were looking at maybe the the visitation
0: how many years were you with national parks
1: just about 12 years and then i moved over to the forest
0: and you moved to the forest service Yes, you know my recollection of interpretation and Forest Service is back early in my career, and I, I got in. I started in seventy. Nineteen seventy was my first interpretive job. Seventy four was when I first met the Association of Interpretive Naturalists and started to meet peers at other sites. But when I met Forest Service people, my recollection was they were called Visitor Information Specialists.
1: I have a a Park Ranger position in the Forest Service. But that position, according to the job description, is very specific to a visitor center complex, you know, engaging the public, talking to the public, presenting programs. But they do have visitor information specialists or visitor information assistants that work at these facilities or work for the forest and do programs. But it's not, it wouldn't be the same as like a naturalist or an interpretive naturalist or a park guide or a park ranger, different job title.
0: Well, but- I it's interesting just because when I think visitor information specialist, I think it's somebody who just gives people information and, uh, (laughs) and back in the day, guess what? We we were kind of trained to do that, to just present to people. And I think the notion of interpretation, especially uh, the influence of Tilden's book, interpreting our heritage of creating conversations with people and, making it much more than just a brain dump of everything you knew about the resource. And, and yet I always thought that their, their choice of terms lended that way. I was a federal worker at land between the lakes in Kentucky. And I understand what you're saying. Those, those job titles they create get embedded in the office of management and budget and all of the HR hierarchy in the federal government. And, uh, Changing that is, I don't know, it requires an act of Congress or something. It's really hard to
1: change it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, oh gosh. You you supervise a regional staff? No, I uh I made the move to the Black Hills National Forest. So I work out of the supervisor's office, which is located in Custer. So once again, I was very fortunate. Now instead of turning left out of my driveway to go to Jewel Cave, I turn right out of my driveway to go to the town of Custer, and 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 haven't had to move once again. My wife didn't have to change jobs, and and uh, so now I, I serve as the recreation program manager for the Black Hills National Forest. So I I oversee and coordinate the the budget and the work that's related to campgrounds, day use areas, trailheads, wilderness locations most anything that deals with developer recreation. And now of course we're getting into a lot of dispersed recreation too or dispersed camping situations. But um it's been it's been a tremendous move for me. I really I really have enjoyed the Forest Service immensely. Um the number of projects that that this particular forest has going on and how big it is compared to even the agencies I used to work for and the diversity of things that go on and the expertise in the office is just, it's just awe-inspiring. I mean, it's a wonderful place to work.
0: And So it's, it's more of a resource management type position than interpretation per se.
1: Yeah. You know, what's really nice is, and, 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 this will probably catch a few people a little bit off guard. Others might know exactly where I'm going with it, but it wasn't too long into my position at the Black Hills National Forest that I even had a couple people when I brought up the idea of doing junior forest ranger programs during the summer, or maybe other activities like the Sally Fence and programs at the campgrounds. No, believe it or not, there were people that said, we're the forest. We don't, we don't do those kinds of things. That's what the National Park Service does. We we typically don't, and uh, you know I I think if it were at a different forest or under a different leadership, maybe that would have been the case. But I'm I'm very I'm very lucky. I work with a supervisor that understands the the success that we've had at these other locations to not only create improved and enhanced visitor services by doing more programming, but you know, on a, on a very upfront transparent way of saying it by engaging the public, especially our local audiences and local communities, I found at least in recreation, they like us. I mean, they, they like what we're doing. They, they know more about the forest. They tend to, to be on our side. If there's some type of issue or problem that gets commented on, maybe through social media, the comments that come in support the recreation program. And, and so, I think now in the last couple of years, the Black Hills National Forces maybe take take a little bit of change in in their position and that, yeah, I mean, if we can if we can do this and we have the staff capacity to do it and the, the energy and the staff's bought into it and we feel comfortable providing these services above and beyond what we've done in the past, why wouldn't we do this? So I you know, it's one of those cases again where I I've got the support, I've got the the buy-in from the team that I work with and the public saying they like it. So I'm having a blast.
0: I actually think what you described sounds great because conversations with stakeholders keep from turning them into critics. Right. And we all know the, the standoff at Malheur refuge and the kind of things that have happened because especially in the Western United States, there are, uh, landowners and ranchers and people who have viewed the federal government's ownership of land to be an intrusion, or if they own, if the feds are going to own the land, they ought to lease it back to us for uh, pennies and we should get to use it. And so uh, when you manage forest or you manage BLM properties, you need to have a relationship with those consumers.
1: Right, right. I think that's the one thing that really sometimes i should say takes people off guard when i run into a you know fellow staff and com you know colleagues at conferences and they ask me about okay you've worked for a state park you've worked for a county you've worked for the national park service you work for the forest service you know first question they typically ask is which one's the best you know which one should should a young person really focus on or go toward and you know that's that's all very subjective i mean it, it it's going to be based on whatever opinions and experiences the person has for me what i've really taken away is that i think it i think it's a lot more challenging in the forest service and that's one of the reasons why i like the position and, and really admire the agency is because it's truly multiple use i mean in the forest the black hills national forest encompasses about 1.2 million acres and spans uh, a region that extends probably 120 miles north to south and about 65 to 70 miles east to west so it's a pretty big chunk of land with a lot of communities and private homes and attractions and landowners so the forest has to deal with hikers cross-country skiers um bikers wilderness campers um there's just so many different user groups that compared to like jewel cave you know the typical person that came to jewel cave on vacation came because they wanted to see the cave and they went on a cave tour and after maybe 4 to 5 hours you know they learned they learned what we provided to them and then they left but for the forest service you're catering to so many different audiences to me, it makes it more challenging. It makes it even more important to do the program so you can engage all these audiences.
0: And, of course, you had a lot of hunters and fishers and uh, kind of consumptive users of the forest. That's very different from park service, where it's it's a more passive use.
1: Correct, correct. So, yeah, the, the forest, I think, in my opinion, the forest just provides a, a wealth of opportunities and experiences, both personally and professionally. It's it's just a wonderful agency to work for.
0: That's great. I I want to take you to off to a different subject to some degree. You got very involved in leadership of NAI and in various roles. What what are some of the roles that you had with the uh, region or national
1: through the years? Oh gosh. The the first the first role that I was involved in, I believe, was um back in the day, region five director position. I was in that position for a couple different terms and, uh, worked with some, some incredible people and, and really got to know a lot of people from, I believe at that time there, there were seven States involved in region five. I think there's more now, of course, but yeah, I was involved as a regional director for a number of years. And then, um, After I stepped down from that position, then I got involved in like the region five elections process and was able to network with people and try and engage them to get involved in this professional organization. And, And then that really kind of opened up a door to start branching out to the national level. And I, at one time, was involved in trying to solicit assistance for people to run for back in the day, the sections elections, you know, reaching out to people from coast to coast and trying to work with them to uh, run for positions for these different sections that were in NAI. And then probably most recently, I was the national awards chairperson for a few years and really enjoyed seeing just the incredible things that people do, you know, across the country from people starting off in their career to people that have been in their profession for 30 years and still coming up with creative ideas. So that was a lot of fun. And then of course, you know, I just, I've been on a number of committees that have worked on a a wealth of different things over the years. I mean, I worked, I remember with you and and the board back in the day when we were moving from the house, if you will, in Fort Collins to its new, you know, home location. I remember going through that process and I remember being involved in the legacy trust fund and reaching out to people and requesting donations back in the day. So yeah, I, uh, I've, I've, I probably dabbled in a lot of different areas with NAI over the years.
0: Well, and you've won some awards. You won several media awards, I know, and uh, I believe Master Interpretive Manager.
1: Yeah, I uh, I was lucky. Uh, a, a very good friend of mine, Amy Yoakum from Iowa, several years ago, I think it was 2007, 2006, 2007, uh, nominated me for uh, the Master Interpretive Manager Award and and didn't know anything about it. Didn't have a clue that that was being done. My my lovely wife, I think, was even involved in some of the collaboration and connections and information sharing. But yeah, I was I was very blessed to go to Kansas to the national workshop and and get that award. And and my my true passion in the field of interpretation is with exhibits and displays. And so. Um, I kind of like those behind the scenes things that sometimes people don't see, but there's a lot of energy being put into it. And we were very lucky out at Jewel Cave when we remodeled the visitor center that we won second place for the Interpretive Media Awards, I think back in 2014. And and then, um, yeah, we did a, a new orientation video, like a park film, if you will, of Jewel Cave. And that was that was probably one of my favorite projects of all time, just because of the the complexity of underground resource filming, but we won first place for that, I believe in 2020. So, so yeah, I've been, I've been blessed by NAI in a few different areas.
0: Well, uh, NAI gained a lot from members like you. I mean, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciated your leadership uh, in so many ways, because you were always a voice who spoke up with reason. And as you know, when I took over in 95, the office was in a faculty office in the forestry building at uh, Colorado State. It was like 12 feet by 18 feet or something. And uh, (laughs) Phil Tedesco was my only other employee. And I could hear everything he said when he was on the phone and he could hear everything I said. It was not exactly privacy. And so that moved to the house on House Street and then later building a um a building that's become a very important resource because it's paid for it's worth a couple million dollars and it's a great property so it was people like Beautiful you facility. that happened because we had to have cooperation at the board level and we had to have donors and you were one of those who stepped up in the legacy trust fund and contributed and uh, life member I, I appreciated so much that kind of dedication that kind of earnest uh getting involved i wonder if i could take you a little different place outside your role at the forest service you ha- you brought your young people by our little coffee farm in hawaii a few years ago when was that
1: yeah so it would have been 2018 i think 2018 march of 2018 our family came over and and uh spent uh, about a week kind of visiting different national park service sites and You and Lisa were very gracious to meet us at the coffee shop and take us to your house and just had an enjoyable visit.
0: Well, I've just been amazed watching your daughter, I believe, just did uh, a semester in Czech Republic.
1: Yes, yes. She had an amazing experience. August to December, living in Prague, soaking up the culture, enjoying the time just in a foreign country, if you will. I mean, she just She just is amazed by it.
0: And did both of you get to go over and visit?
1: Yeah, actually, uh, and and I say this maybe with a little smile on my face, but as a dad, I have to admit, I was a little bit concerned. I I didn't know what to expect or, you know, what Darian was going to be up against. And I've never been to the Czech Republic. I don't know anything about the country. And so I opted to fly over with her like, like probably many dads and, and take her there. And uh, I came to find out that I I've been bitten now by that international travel bug, because now I want to go. I mean, Prague was just, it was just an amazing city. Um, the people I spoke with were just as friendly as can be. Um, I I drank a few adult beverages with people. I didn't even know, but you would think that I, I've, I've known them for weeks by the way we were, you know, communicating and and I was able to visit a number of World War II sites that I've always wondered about in Prague because it was part of that whole um, World War II era and history and so I was able to see sites and learn about that and and so yeah kind of kind of living vicariously through my daughter's international study abroad program I I just I kind of fell in love with with Europe
0: what's her future career What's she headed into
1: She's getting into tourism and hospitality, so I, I don't know exactly what she wants to do, but the little bit that she she shares, it wouldn't surprise me if she ends up moving to Europe and working for some type of big hotel, if you will, and serve as the concierge. She just loves that kind of uh, somewhat romantic travel industry idea that a lot of young people know about and probably take more advantage of it than when I was her age. So,
0: yeah, I taught hospitality and tourism for seven years here in the community college system. And it's really interesting. Some of these corporations, like Marriott, if you go to work for them, you can transfer all over the world. You, you, yes. Can. And uh, like Disney, they, they put you in a real, Uh, different sets of environments if you want to do that. And I believe you have a young man working for Disney.
1: Yeah, my son uh, attended Northern Arizona University, and uh, he fell in love with their parks and recreation program. So he had a choice to make, you know, he could go down the path of public lands and kind of be like dad if you will or he could choose the other pathway which is more of the amusement park and entertainment venues and so he uh he basically enrolled himself into the disney college program got an internship was an entertainer um he was friends with peter pan and and a few other characters and just really really immersed himself into the Disney culture and uh, kind of worked himself into a position that when he graduated, now he's serving as a, as a behind the scenes tour guide at animal kingdom. So when people go to animal kingdom, they sometimes will pay for these tour packages to go behind the scenes, like behind the Kilimanjaro safari ride. And he's the one that takes them out there and talks about the wildlife and the, the safari experience. And yeah, I, I know some people roll their eyes when I say this, but Disney doesn't do a lot of things wrong. I mean, they they know what they're doing. They do it very well, and they take care of their staff, and he's he's on a team that he loves. He's doing something he just thoroughly enjoys. He meets people from around the world, and so he's loving life right now. And
0: I can understand that. Uh, Lisa and I taught a certified interpretive trainers course at Animal Kingdom, and wow it was behind the scenes and it was fabulous to see kind of what back of the house looks like at disney which is incredible it is yeah and uh chris whipple who worked for disney back then and who's a certified interpretive trainer and teaches cig courses she uh she was our host in doing that and it was a it was a great introduction to the that despite disney being entertainment focused they have chosen places to be very interpretive and do it very professionally and so we were impressed yes i have to tell you i've been looking forward to talking to you because when we talked months ago you said been very busy right now i know you do things with uh what is it football you're involved in yeah i
1: i coach football for the custer high school i uh I've been doing that for 24 25 years. I I don't know, but I I love the sport and and for someone like me who's been in the field a long time, sometimes football is kind of one of those hobbies or passions you can do that gets your mind off the the visitor questions or the other issues that sometimes happen at work. So
0: <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, it's been great catching up. I uh, I'm going to hope that you or any member of your family come back and visit us on the big island. We would love to see you again and show you the changes. There's been a few changes, and uh, I wish you well. Is there anything that you think of you're going to do next, or are you just going to stay with what you're doing and enjoy it?
1: You know, I, I'm i kind of in that good position. I mean, I, I love what I do. I love the people that I work with. My supervisor is 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 just a wonderful person and, and very supportive of what I want to do and the vision that I have. But but at the same time, um, probably like a lot of people, you know, after four or five, six years, sometimes you want to do something different. So I I don't know, maybe in the next few years, I might come across another job that might open up and seem like a path to follow. But, but I'll, I'll just tell you on a personal level, I my family, my wife and I, we don't have any expectations or desire to leave the Black Hills. So, you know, whatever comes open would probably have to stay here so we can just stay in our in our community. But, you know, it's, I, I will say that I've been privileged over the years to work with some great people and some wonderful organizations and and really have had great experiences and, and so forth. So I I don't know if I'll ever change or move out of the field. It's just too much of a family to me
0: understand and you live in a very beautiful area so uh (laughs) it's great to have that kind of lifestyle thanks for saying yes to getting together after the first of the year and uh yeah i look forward to seeing you next time
1: yeah my family and i are already talking about seeing you and lisa again kids always talk about that as one of the favorite parts of their trip to the big island so you never know i might text you and say we're on our way please do
0: take care my friend Thanks, Bradley, for joining me today. My next guest on February 23rd is Dr. Robert Hinkle, former director of outdoor education at Cleveland Metro Parks. We'll be talking about his long career in teaching wildlife management and overseeing a diverse staff in management and development of nature centers in the Emerald Necklace of Parks surrounding Cleveland, Ohio. Thanks also to Mark Stoffel for use of his beautiful mandolin music. This time, Buckminster Waltz from his Coffee and Cake album. I hope you have a wonderful week. Bye.